Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. This week, I am happy to bring you yet another fantastic course from the Commune Library. As you may know, in addition to being a podcast, Commune is also a video course platform featuring a wide range of programs from top teachers on spiritual growth, yoga, meditation, spirituality, functional medicine, nutrition, and social impact. Essentially, everything that you need to be holistically well. This week, you'll be hearing from spiritual leader and U.S. presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson. Her program, Teaching the Teachers, is designed to help yoga and meditation teachers, spiritual leaders, life coaches, and therapists become the best that they can be. Across the course of this program, Marianne shares decades of experience to help teachers discover the deepest version of themselves and effectively offer that wisdom to their students. So over the next five days, we will be releasing the first five parts of Marianne's course. Now, if you want to watch the full video version in all its glory, which includes 10 core lessons plus bonus meditations, transcripts, and reflections, well, I encourage you to go to onecommune.com slash Marianne and sign up for a free trial of Commune membership. That's one, O-N-E, commune.com slash Marianne. There you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including the full-length version of Teaching the Teachers. We will always email you before your free trial is up, but if you continue on to become a Commune member, well, thank you. Our members are the key reason we are able to create and share free content like this. And if you regularly tune into this podcast, I also ask you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite pod catcher. Just tap follow show and leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. And now here's day five, where Marianne will teach you how to help the people you serve remove the barriers to the awareness of love's presence. I'd like to talk for a moment about how spiritual health is mental health. Let me go back uh, to the ultimate uh, treatises on mental health, and that's the great religious traditions, three particularly, Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity. Buddha said that life is suffering, and his realization that life is suffering is what led him on his journey to enlightenment, which of course culminated in his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. In the Old Testament, the central myth of the Jewish religion in the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus, which begins with the suffering of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. Out of that begins the journey to the Promised Land. So once again, you have suffering in the Buddhist tradition, Buddha recognizing that life is suffering, then the journey to enlightenment and his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. You have in Judaism, you have the suffering of the Israelites, slaves in Egypt, then leading to the journey through the desert, culminating in entrance into the promised land. And in the Christian religion, obviously, the suffering of Jesus on the cross, the crucifixion, then leading three-day journey to the resurrection. So notice that this is the same universal theme, that you begin with suffering, 
So all the great religious and spiritual traditions, all of them speak to the, not only to the reality of human suffering, but there is no religious and spiritual path that I've ever encountered that gives anybody a, a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. That's the whole point of religious and spiritual understanding is that the suffering exists on this planet. But the ultimate response, God's response to the suffering is enlightenment, promised land, resurrection, self-actualization, mental health. It's all the same thing. Oneness with God is the ultimate mental health. When you think of our very identity, as it says in the Course in Miracles, as ideas in the mind of God. So the Course in Miracles says you are on this earth to learn to think as God thinks. So the spiritual journey is the journey to mental health. Once again, religion and psychotherapy at their peak, the same thing. And no, when I'm talking about religion here, I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking about dogma. Uh, the Course in Miracles doesn't have any doctrine or dogma. It's not religions in any exoteric sense. The spiritual path is the path of the heart, but the path of the heart is the path towards the right mind. Now, when, when I mentioned before, that God's ultimate response to suffering, God's response to darkness is resurrection, promised land, enlightenment, and so forth. This brings up the notion that the mind has a capacity to heal from dis-ease, dysfunction. The physical body is such that the human race would not have survived and thrived for hundreds of thousands and more years were we not imbued with an immune system. The physical body can take quite an amount, a large amount of, of, of sickness and assault and injury and heal from it and integrate the experience of the disease and heal from that. That's called the immune system. That the immune system is what enables us to do this. And obviously, a person with a compromised immune system for that reason is in big trouble. Now, this is the deal. The psyche has an immune system as well. The, the psyche can also take a, a hit. It can take a large amount of trauma. It can take a large amount of heartbreak. It can take a large amount of upset and heal from that. Humanity would not have survived without its psychic immune system any more than humanity would have survived without our physical immune system. This is an extremely important point. In, in particularly in our society today, where human despair has become medicalized. You know, The Course in Miracles uses the word depression quite a lot. When you are out of alignment with the thinking of God, which is the thinking of love, you will become depressed. That's what the Garden of Eden is all about. Exile from the garden, meaning when you are separated from the confluence of thought, which is basic mercy and justice and love and forgiveness, atoning for our own mistakes and forgiving other people for theirs. And as a teacher, that is your primary role. As a therapist, as a teacher, your primary role is to help people find ways to atone for their own mistakes and to forgive other people for theirs, which is the same thing as saying helping people to remove the barriers to the awareness of love's presence. Now, there are serious mental illnesses, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, etc. That is not my lane. That is not my expertise. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I am talking about and what is my lane is normal spectrum of human despair. 
That is not a medical issue. When someone has been through a, a trauma, when someone has been through a divorce, when someone has been through um, a bankruptcy, when someone has lost someone that they love, these kinds of things are very, very painful, but they're not a mental disease. So what has happened over the last few decades is this medicalization of normal human despair. And that's where you come up with your epidemic of the overprescription of antidepressants, where people are made to feel these days that there's something wrong with them because they're upset. But if you went through a big financial loss, if you went through a divorce, if you uh, lost someone that you love, nothing's not wrong with you that you're upset. You know, sometimes the fact that we're upset means the presence of mental health, not the absence of mental health. And just like if you're bruised in your body, you're going to just have to be gentle with yourself for a while because it's going to take time for your body to heal. The same with heartbreak, the same with psychic pain. Sometimes you're just going to have to be gentle and you're going to have to move through this while your mind has a chance to heal itself. Just as in the body, you want doctors who work with your immune system not trying to substitute for your immune system, but working with your immune system. If it was hundreds of years ago, it was organized religion that people looked to uh, for comfort and for inspiration uh, and, and, and guidance in times of difficulty. That baton was passed to modern psychotherapy. And it was passed in, in, in large part because much of the dispensing of that religious information and power was itself corrupted. For whatever reason, <clears throat> people shifted in many cases from looking to their religious institutions for comfort and inspiration to looking to psychotherapy for comfort and inspiration. What has happened over the last few decades in our society, and it happened so quickly that it was like all of a sudden you turned around, everybody's on meds, is that we've now moved to the, psycho, to the psychopharmacological model. And we're just kind of skipping in too many cases, right over to something's wrong, you're upset, you've been crying a lot. And you know, this is very disturbing because when you look like online, you go to see the signs of clinical depression. And I remind you, all that that means is somebody diagnosed you in a clinic. People talk about how, oh, you've been crying a lot. Who's really, at what point, who's to say that if you cry 17 tears, that's okay. But if you cry 35, that's too much. Who's to say that? Who's to say that a sleepless night is necessarily bad? Oh, you've got sleepless nights. Sometimes, you know, there's an art to moving through depression creatively and in a healthy manner. And sleepless nights is kind of part of the process. And sleepless nights are hard in, when we're depressed. And they're hard because things are, the demons are coming out of the cave, you know things that you can distract yourself from during the day or during hours when you kick out at somebody on the phone. You can't distract yourself from. But sometimes those things you have to, you're trying to distract yourself from, as painful as they are, are exactly the things you need to look at. Like your part in the disaster. That when you have to face the fact, well, how I behaved in that relationship was an issue too. Or you have to look at the fact that, yeah, I can see where maybe they didn't want me to work there anymore, or I did mismanage that money. I wasn't responsible with it. So the fact that I lost it, you know, all those things, of course they're painful, but you don't want to block that because how do you learn? 
you know, we heal to a kind of detox. Stuff has got to come up. You have to atone. You have to look sometimes the humiliation, you know, humiliation and loss and grief and rage. These are part of the journey not of, of, of the seeker. And you can't have a journey of a teacher if you yourself are not a seeker. You can't be a teacher if you yourself aren't a seeker. You, because otherwise you're not speaking from any moral authority. Once again, it's not just dispensing information. It's, it's transmitting information. And it's when you transmit information from the fact, I've been there. I've lived through this. People can feel it. People can smell it when it's real. People know when it's real. And when you yourself have, have burned through, you know, sometimes people will say, well, they're just taking the antidepressants. They're just taking something to take the edge off while they're doing the work. That is so ridiculous, and I'll tell you why. Being with that edge is the work. And no, it's not easy. And it is sometimes like surgery without anesthetic, but that kind of psychic surgery, you can't be blocked from the horror of realizing, yeah, given that I acted that way, I'm not surprised that he left. Given that I was so irresponsible with the money, I'm not surprised that I lost it. Given that, you know, I didn't behave better in that situation. These are very painful. But these moments, if we don't go through them, how do we learn from them? And if we don't learn from them, where is the guarantee that we will be different later? So a large part of the work of the teacher, of the therapist, of the psychotherapist, is to bear witness to the agony of someone. Not to try to, okay, take, you know, let me, let me take your agony away, but let me hold that you are moving through this agony within a sacred context. And you're not gonna distract yourself. And you're going to be with people like the spiritual counselor, like God's ther- psychotherapist, as the Course in Miracles would say. I know in my own work, I've been so impressed sometimes when people at my lectures will stand up and they'll ask a question and I can tell they're in pain. And I, I always acknowledge them I'm so, and, and say, I'm so impressed that you're here. Because this, this kind of a thing, or an AA meeting or whatever, is exactly where you should be at a time like this. And I really admire you that you're not trying to just distract yourself from what's going on. You know, spiritual teaching should have both grace and grit. Because the spiritual and the religious impulse speaks to human suffering. Buddha said life is suffering. The Old Testament begins with the suffering of the Israelites. Jesus suffered on the cross. People, you know, I always say in my career, people don't usually come to me because things are going well. So I'd like to talk for a moment about how, how you hold both as, as a, as a, as a teacher and as a writer, the suffering of others. Now, one of the things that, you know, has become very big in our career is this over coddling, this over like, precious, you know, treating, treating everybody like, we're so precious. I know you're so hurt. No, 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 no. I see too much attention given to superficial pain and it keeps us from giving the attention we should be giving sometimes to serious pain. And one of the things we've already talked about is how, what was, you know, the role of institutionalized religion where people really looked centuries ago and in some cases still, but beginning many, many you know centuries ago to find their inspiration and their comfort. And then it moved into, into a, a psychotherapeutic model where people looked there for comfort. And then in too many cases, people haven't found their comfort and inspiration. They're now gone way into psychopharmacology and people are just kind of like, well, all right, I'll just see my despair as an anxiety disorder or a clinical depression. And 
this overprescription of antidepressants that is occurring because of this is taking the sacred quality out of the whole experience of human despair. And that's what I would like to talk to you about now, because when you understand that, you can address the despair in others in a much, much deeper level. You know, I've heard people say, oh yeah, well, you know, people should pray too, that helps, or people should meditate too. Like, excuse me, I don't know why so many rabbis, priests, and ministers are expected these days to take psychology classes. I think more psychotherapists need to be taking meditation in classes about being a prayer practitioner. So when you do see a spectrum of normal human despair, that let's say a divorce or the loss of a loved one or bankruptcy, uh, these things that are painful, but they are not mental illnesses. How do we address that? And in my book, Tears to Triumph, that's what my book, Tears to Triumph, is all about. I want to begin by reading a quote from the Greek tragedian Aeschylus, because I think it's one of the most powerful quotes out there about a context for human despair. It says, he who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. What you want to give your client, your, your, your student, whoever comes to you for counseling, is a place where they can search for meaning in their pain. We have developed this culture where the first question is, how do I get out of my pain? How do I get out of my pain? But ultimately, you're not going to get out of your pain unless you transform your pain. And you are not going to transform your pain unless you learn what there is to learn from it. In every situation, well, there are the situations where, let's say someone you love died or something happened to you as a child, you know, you really were a victim. But most of the pain that you will have brought to you as a counselor or as a teacher is pain where people, if they are really digging deep, will look at the fact that their own mistakes contributed mightily to what occurred. And so as a counselor, you don't want to be someone who's just coming from a place of, how can we get you out of the pain? You know, this cheap yellow smiley face that's been poured over everything. Happy, happy, happy. That's not the goal. The goal should be wisdom because you can't find peace unless you've, you've achieved something from your pain. So there's a level of humiliation and loss and grief and rage that comes from broken love affairs. It comes from divorces. It comes from jobs that went south, we got fired, we lost our money, we blew it in a project. These things happen. And we're not serving the client if all we're doing is joining with them in the belief that they were victimized. You know, when people come and these days, it's so easy to get social uh, permission for judging, for blaming, for victimization, or even like, you know, if you go to talk about a relationship, it's so, it's so easy to find therapists these days who will join with you. And you know, that person 
that was a bad person that you were dating, or that was a sociopath, or that was an avoidant, or that was an addict, or whatever, which they might have been, by the way. But the answer is always the same. The spiritual answer, the Course in Miracles says, you think you have many different problems. You only have one, and that is your separation from God. Separation from God means separation from loving thought. The two categories of loving thought when it comes to relationships, and every situation is a relationship, the Course says, is atonement for your own mistakes and forgiving other people for theirs. So the Course in Miracles says you, you must take 100% responsibility for your own experience. And if you don't, you'll pay a very high price for that. And the high price you'll pay is that you won't be able to change your experience. So to really be a counselor from a spiritual perspective, you're a safe place for people to look deeply at the part they play. You know, I've had uh, some people... I've certainly done me wrong in my life, but nobody's done me wrong as much as I've done myself wrong. And even in situations where people have done me wrong, I've had to look at, at ways in which I allowed them into the room or I, in other ways, conspired with the conditions that then brought me pain. So when you counsel people, you want to be a safe place for them to look at themselves not just the cheap and easy, oh, poor darling, I'll join with you in the thought that you were that you were victimized. No, 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 no. This is not a time when any of us should just be coddling our pain, feeling our pain. You want to validate someone's human pain, but as their spiritual companion, and that's what the, the counselor is, that's what the teacher is, you're their spiritual, their spiritual companion to join with them in the thoughts that lift them beyond the pain. And that can never come from seeing yourself as a victim. Remember, the Christ in you cannot be crucified. So where were the things that we have to look at? And it's not to take blame, it's to take responsibility. Because only if I take responsibility can I atone. And if I don't atone for what I did and say, I get that. I get that I was controlling. I get that I was negative. I get that I was whiny. I get that I was lazy. I get that I procrastinated. I get that I didn't rise to the occasion. I get that I had expectations. I get that I wasn't happy. I get that I wasn't fun to be around. I get that I was rude. I get that I was arrogant. I get that I was, I mean, you know, I have had so many things happen in my life where upon deep examination, I went, well, that was me. I've had so many um, opportunities, including professional opportunities, um, that I won't name because famous people are involved, but where I had opportunities, and if I had just behaved with greater integrity, said, you know, done what I said I was going to do, or just waited, prayed about something, then you, then you see later something didn't unfold there that would have unfolded if you yourself had been more impeccable. Not big transgressions, but just these little transgressions. So sometimes, you know, that's why this joke, you know, after antidepressants, the overprescription of antidepressants, another obsession we have in our society is with sleeping pills because people are like, God forbid I should have a sleepless night. But sometimes those sleepless nights when we are in despair is part of the project, uh, part of the process. You know, when people say, well, you're gonna take an antidepressant so that we can take the edge off while you're doing the work. Once again, being with the edge is the work, and it's hard. 
You know, and I've been what the world calls clinically depressed. And I remember one time when I went through a situation that by any standards would be called clinical depression. And it was like I saw a black wave coming at me. I had been in shock about the situation and someone had asked me a couple days before, are you sad? And I said, no, I, you know, I'm, I understand that, you know, it just happens. And then about two days later, I was sitting, I remember I was sitting in my bedroom and it was like seeing a black wave coming at me and I knew that there was no escaping it. And it was just there. And I knew that there was no running away from it. And I knew I had to just settle in. And learning how to navigate the dark nights of the soul is much more positive than trying to avoid the dark nights of the soul. It's a season of life. We hear too many people say today, oh, don't feel bad. Or, you know, you didn't do anything. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you did make some mistakes or the silliness, like you can't, couldn't, you, it wasn't meant to be, you didn't make a mistake. Well, maybe you did make a mistake. The Course in Miracles says, it's not up to you what you learn. It is merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. And notice even as I'm speaking, it's going back and forth between what you're learning for yourself and what you're learning for your client or your, 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 you know, your student, but it's all the same because you can't really dispense information and you can't really bear witness in a powerful, meaningful way to the agony of someone else, if you've not experienced those waters yourself in a way that was transformative. And so what you don't want to do is be a space where people feel that you're just going to help them avoid their pain or cover their pain or fog their pain. You want to be a place where people can come with their pain to be with someone who, who has compassion for it, but at the same time is not going to coddle it and is going to help guide you through the process of looking through what you need to look through, look at what you, you know, the process of looking at what you need to look at in order to transform it. And sometimes those painful nights are because you can't stop thinking about, you know, if only I hadn't said this, if only I hadn't said that. If only I, I had taken a, a, a weekend. I mean, there are a couple things in my life where I suffered for years over something where I couldn't get over the fact if I'd just taken the weekend to pray about it. And many of us have those things. We're all moving too fast. We're not reflecting. You know, one of the most powerful things somebody once told me about business was, if you go into a business meeting, Marianne, I remember, and I don't even remember what it was, it was a lawyer or somebody, and they said, you don't have to say anything. And we always feel like we have to respond. And sometimes in situations, we all need to cultivate more of silent, taking something in, not knowing you have to respond immediately. We have lost our capacity and everybody lacks impulse control these days. And sometimes you're not in a situation where you could say to someone, May I pray about this? Although in one situation I'm thinking about, it. if I had said to her, could I take a couple of days to pray about it? She would have been fine with that. 
But in other situations, it would be more appropriate to just say, can I think about it uh, for a couple days? And that would be more than appropriate. We're, we, we text too quickly. We talk too quickly. We send the email too quickly. Social media, the fact that we're on our tablets all the time, has only increased this lack of impulse control because you have a way. So therapy, counseling, and coming to you for a teacher, one of the reasons I love my lectures is because when I'm doing a group, nobody's got their phone on. We don't have enough of that in our society anymore. So in that quiet, people can find their wisdom. And sometimes you're not going to find it without looking at things that are the places where you have something you need to look at. You know, sometimes people will say to me, well, Marion, 90% of it was the other person's fault. And my response is, well, the 10% of it that's yours is what we have to look at. And I know that from my own life. You know, it's, it, life is not just about what happens to us. It's about who we choose to be in the space of what happens to us. And that's what you want people to get from you who are coming to you as students or coming to you as clients, that, that your support has to do with helping them be the person that they are capable of being within the space of whatever has happened to us. Otherwise, we're a society of victims. And that's what's happened too much in our society today. Everybody's going around like, I'm so wounded, I'm so wounded, and going to too many so-called spiritual teachers and counselors who are almost exacerbating that and supporting people in blaming others rather than saying, how, how can I support you in being your best? How can I support you in atoning for your mistakes here? How can I support you in forgiving others for theirs? And you forgive both yourself and others when you have a spiritual context by knowing we're all innocent people but we're all at the effect of this mindset that dominates the planet, the ego's mindset, that gets us very confused. It's like something that's hacked the system, and we're all confused, and we get into situations where we don't know how to express our love and get our needs met. And because the universe is intentional, we are brought situations in the form of relationships that do challenge us, that do trigger us, that do bring up the humiliation and the rage and the, the temptation to be less than we really are capable of being because that's how we grow. But then sometimes it's so embarrassing because you find yourself making your biggest mistakes around people you care about the most, making your biggest mistakes around the, in the situations that you care about the most. And it's devastating. But that's called life. That's called growth. That's how we change. That's how we transform. You know, once again, the Israelites were enslaved by the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is the ego mind. But the point is then God sends Moses, that aspect within the self, to deliver us to that promised land. But it's a journey. It's those 40 years were a journey through the desert. They were not easy. Jesus on the cross, excuse me, this was not easy. The temptations that Buddha went through in those 40 days and 40 nights were not easy. This idea that it should all be easy. No, it shouldn't. You know, and we're paying a terrible price for this as a society by not honoring the fact 
that sometimes life is hard and that's okay. And let me tell you something, our children, it does not serve our children for us to think that no matter what the problem is, mommy and daddy will fix it. Mommy and daddy will interrupt. Mommy and daddy will interfere. Rather, the, the thing with children is thank God that they're going to go through some things while they're still at home with me so that I can help them develop their emotional skills, their emotional musculature for dealing with problems. Because when they leave your house, they're going to, they're going to meet situations that call for their growth. And if they were just raised to be kind of spoiled, entitled people who don't understand how this could happen, why isn't someone fixing it for me? They're not going to succeed in life. They're not going to grow. They're not going to have good relationships. They're not going to have powerful careers. Whether it has to do with personal relationships or it has to do with career. Sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. Sometimes we rise and sometimes we fall. Powerful people are not people who never fall down. Powerful people are people who know that when they, when I do fall, let me have the musculature and the attitudinal skill set to get myself back up. I read a book by Ray Dalio and he said something about how, you know, people who are creative, you know, and living important, meaningful lives are going to take risks. And the more you risk, the more chance you are, the chances, you know, there is that you might fail. But I love the expression. He said, if you fail, fail well. And I, in every area of my life, I've succeeded. And in every area of my life, I've failed. But I like to think, at least in the last few years, that I've failed well. And what does that have to do with? It has to do with learning what you need to learn, taking responsibility for your failure, not blaming other people, not playing victim, and trying to learn from it. The only real failure is something that you didn't learn from. And that's what you want to be as a teacher and a counselor, supporting people in, knowing that, okay, you're down today, but this is not the end. The end is the journey to the promised land. The end is the resurrection. The end is the enlightenment. You're on the cross today. You're enslaved by Pharaoh today. You're, you're in the suffering of life today, but this thing ain't over till the happy part. And until the happy part, it's not over. And so you are bearing witness to someone's agony and you are, you are sharing with them your human compassion, but you are holding the space. That's really the job of the counselor is to hold the space, the alternative, the presence of the alternative, which is when someone is sitting in front of you, that's the art form. You want your client your student to be someone who on one hand simultaneously feels your deep compassion for what they're going through, but also at the same time, you refuse to be enrolled. It does not serve them for you to be enrolled in the idea that this is it or they're victims. No, you bear witness to their agony, but you also bear witness to their strength that lies beyond this. You know, sometimes people would say about this, oh, you're invalidating their pain. No, 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 no. You're not invalidating their pain. You are validating their capacity through the grace of God to move beyond this pain. And that, for instance, if you are a psychotherapist and you're, you're, you're trying to embrace here a larger spiritual dimension, that's the whole point is that you are not left in your suffering. Jesus is not left on the cross. The Israelites were not left in, in the condition of slavery, that God delivers us, that by whatever name we call it, there is a power, there is an immune system 
that the story's not over until we grow beyond this. That is the resurrection, that I'm better now. I have grown. The resurrection doesn't mean I wasn't crucified, you know, because once again, there's a difference between transcendence and denial. This is not about denying your pain. It's not about denying that you might have messed up to some extent. It's about the fact that I have grown from all this. I have transformed from all this. I, I'm, I'm better. I have learned. And, you know, one of the things in life, and I think it's important that this is part of what we tell people who are in these situations. Other people might not see that you've changed immediately. And some people just aren't into forgiving you or are going to keep blaming you for what you did before or whatever. But even that is part of navigating the terrain and knowing that you will prove to people. People will, will, will see over time if you're different, if you're different. So this isn't about, okay, I've atoned, now everybody forgive me. No, maybe not. Maybe they're not going to immediately. But the dignity lies in knowing, I know that I have come clean before God, and I have come clean to the, to the, to the greatest extent that I can to the person towards whom an amends might be called for. And I have sought to learn from all this, to transform to atone for my mistakes, to forgive others for theirs. Once again, um, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. To atone for my mistakes, to forgive others for theirs. That's the only way to enter into the space of the miraculous rebirth. You, you are reborn, the Course in Miracles says, in any situation that you enter without the past. And as long as we are entering with thoughts of guilt, ours or anyone else's, then we're dragging the past into it. But you have to burn through it. You can't just deny it or skip over it. And even with your own guilt, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help to hold on to the mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. The Course in Miracles says temporary discomfort is aroused when we feel bad about something. You know, I don't understand people going around these days, oh, don't feel bad, don't feel bad. Let me tell you something, only a sociopath feels no remorse. The fact that your conscience is bothered when you know you did something wrong is a good thing, not a bad thing. It means you're human. If you feel like, oh, my heart, you know, I, I used to know these women when I lived in Detroit, and they came from a traditional Christian background, and they would say, my heart is disturbed, my heart is disturbed. If your heart is disturbed, that means something. Psychic pain is there for a reason, just like physical pain is there for a reason. That's why you don't want to just, you know, if you have a broken leg, you don't just take morphine. You don't just take a painkiller. you got to reset the bone. And same with psychic pain. You can't just take a painkiller for psychic pain. You have to reset the thinking that lies behind it. And sometimes the pain is knowing, oh, I have to look at some things in myself. Even when, even when somebody did it to you, what were you doing in the room? What did, what, why did they have the keys into the room? These are such important things for us to look at. And so it's a process. It's a journey. And that situation where I felt, boy, it was coming, this period of depression was coming, it took a while. But if I hadn't taken that time, then I would not be okay about it in the way I am today. And what I've learned about depressed periods, 
I remember when I was going through this, I had to keep working. I had to keep giving lectures. I had to counsel other people. And the subconscious mind is unbelievable. I remember one particular day, but there were quite a few like this. First of all, sleepless nights. I didn't even expect to sleep. That's part of that experience sometimes. And I had to counsel someone. Let's say it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. And I didn't know how I was going to get out of bed. But I knew I had to. And, you know, the word discipline and the word disciple come from the same root. I have a moon in Capricorn, so that's been my salvation. I do keep working. And I, knew, I just knew I had to do it. I knew, Marianne, you're going to have to get out of bed, and you're going to have to take a shower, and you're going to have to get dressed, and you're going to simply have to show up. And it was so amazing what I realized. And I've seen it at other times. My subconscious knew what needed to be done, and it was like my agony was put on the shelf for an hour. It was just put on the shelf, and then I came back to it at the end of that hour. Now, also, having helped somebody else was the best thing I could do because it also helped lift me up. Too many of us, when we are going through a depressed period, and this is important when you're working with people who are depressed, this is not a time to not show up for others. This is one of the ways you rise above. So to do the things which both care for yourself gently and at the same time show up, keep contributing to life, it's so important because this is one of the things that generate our capacity to move beyond. I, I talk in my book, Tears to Triumph. This is all about that shift from despair to peace, which comes from the experience of the search for enlightenment. And I talk about Buddha, and I talk about the Old Testament, and I talk about the New Testament. You know, we talk too much in spirituality these days about what God can do for us, and not nearly enough about what God expects from us. You know, in Buddhism, there is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path has to do with the things we need to do to be correct in thought, in speech, in mindfulness. And in the Old Testament, when, when in the middle of it, going up to Mount Sinai and, and Moses receiving the tablets, and the tablets have the Ten Commandments, these are the things God has just delivered the people from slavery. And then he says, and this is what I want you to do and not do. There's a deep connection there between I've delivered you from your suffering and this is who I want you to be. And he says, I will make of you a priestly people. And the same with Jesus. You don't just believe in Jesus. The Course in Miracles says, belief doesn't mean anything. Experience means something. So the issue of believing in Jesus is, is, is discipleship. And he said, love each other. Love others as you so love yourself. Too many of us like, oh, forgot about that part. So I think that there is a, a level of rising to the occasion involved with, with co-creating with God the resurrective state whereby we are, we are lifted out of our despair. And that's, that's the art form as a teacher. That's the art form as a counselor, which I said, <laughs> if you haven't done this work yourself, 
you don't have quite the same power with your students or with your clients. You know, it's like in AA, the person who has themselves gotten sober is the one who can counsel the new person coming in, you know, trying to get sober from alcohol or drugs. Someone who themselves has walked through that path has a, has a, a power that someone else doesn't. I know in, in working with uh, vets, because I've worked with vets, but I know that at the Veterans Administration and a lot of those organizations, what they're really looking for, understandably, is other veterans. Because somebody who's been in combat can talk to a, to a veteran, you know, in a way I can't. I, I, I can be helpful, but not like another veteran can. Same with the work that we do. People can feel, um, you know. I remember, I remember the AIDS crisis, being with mothers. They didn't know how I knew, but they knew I knew. Thanks a lot for listening to this excerpt from Marianne Williamson's course on Teaching the Teachers. If you want to watch all 10 days of this course, plus access bonus meditations, transcripts, and reflections, well, go to onecommune.com slash Marianne and sign up for a free trial of commune membership. That's one, O-N-E, commune.com slash Marianne. There you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including the full-length version of Teaching the Teachers. Okay, well, feel free to email me with any suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.